So we just sang about um, looking to the future. That's what we talked about last week. Uh, we want to come back once more to Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to be looking at verse number 17, starting at verse 17. So Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. And it says this, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, tested offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of those sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Well, like some of you, uh, in the past few weeks, I've become a teacher. Uh, I, I wasn't used to teaching my children as far as their, their schoolwork, teach them other things, right? But but uh, a lot of us, because of what we're going through right now, we're, we're having to relearn some math, maybe try to learn math for the first time, as is my case, uh, and, and we're trying to teach our, our children, and, and so uh, I've been doing that. One of the things that uh, helping Lauren in, in school with was uh, some of the axioms, they're called axioms of multiplication, axioms of addition, and, and so forth, and so... Uh, one day we had to call Brandon and do a Zoom call because Brandon knows what he's doing. So Brandon had to tutor me and Lauren uh, so that, you know, well, he tutored me so that I could help Lauren, right? Uh, but, but these axioms are just principles, axioms of multiplication, axioms of addition. This is, the, these are principles that this is how numbers work, and, and when you multiply, this is true, and it's consistently true, and it's always true. Well, I think when we look to the book of Hebrews, especially chapter 11, uh, I, I think really what we're seeing, we might call them axioms of faith. This is what faith is. This is the way that faith operates. And, and we're seeing that he's, he's pulling from the Old Testament to illustrate these axioms. Right? He's saying, hey, remember Abraham? Remember Noah? Remember this person who did this? Uh, but as we look to those stories and as we're recalling them, what we're seeing is that he's illustrating this is what faith is like. He's, he's giving us axioms of faith. We've looked at now four axioms of faith or four principles about faith. The, the first one was just simply a definition that faith is a divinely given confidence in God and in his promises. Faith is a divinely given inner confidence in God and his promises. It isn't something that we work up on our own. Uh, God gives us faith. It's a confidence that he gives to us. It's an assurance that both, both of the fact that he is real, that he exists, and that he rewards those who diligently seek him, that his promises are true. The second axiom that we saw was that faith acts. Faith acts. Faith knows God to be real and it trusts his promises to be absolutely true and certain. And so, uh, so that it begins to act in obedience to his call and command. In other words, if we have faith, if you have real, true faith, this inner confidence that God gives to you, 
one thing that it will always do is that it will always begin to influence your actions so that you behave and respond in a way that, that corresponds to the fact that you do believe what God has said. Faith acts. The third axiom or the third principle was this. Faith pleases God. Faith pleases God. And therefore, when we act in faith, as faith causes us to act, and it always does, when we act in faith, it pleases God, and therefore it receives His favor, blessing, and commendation. You can see that word commendation come up again and again uh, in, in Hebrews chapter 11. Verse number 2 speaks of the commendation. Verse number 4 says Abel was commended. Verse number 5 says that Abel pleased God. And verse number 6 says that if we want to please God, we must have faith because without faith it is impossible to please God, which implies, I think, that if we have faith and if we respond in faithful obedience to God, then we can please God. We mentioned how that's all in the sphere of grace, right? It, within, within the bound of God's grace, we, we can please Him uh, and be commended and, and uh, receive blessing from that. Then last week, we looked at the fourth axiom, the fourth principle about, about faith, which is what we just sang about. Faith looks to the future. Specifically, it looks to eternity and to heaven for the fulfillment of God's promises. We talked about how we as Christians are not people who are looking for God to fulfill all of His promises in this life. In fact, we're, we're people who really don't necessarily look for most of God's promises to be fulfilled in this life. We are people who understand that there is an eternity, that there is life after this life, and that it is that age, that it is that time after our death or after the return of Christ in which we will receive most of or the, uh, the, the, the fulfillment of God's promises. The full fulfillment, let me say it that way, of God's promises. So let me give you axiom number five, which is today, the, the fifth principle, and that is this. Faith trusts God even when it may appear to us in the moment that His promises are coming untrue. Faith trusts God even when it may appear to us in, in the moment that we're in that His promises are coming untrue. So let's look at this story. It's the story of, of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. And, and you just remember, uh, we started last week kind of telling the story from the book of Genesis when Adam and Eve fell into sin and God's judgment was placed upon them. But very early in the story, Genesis chapter 3.15, we get the first hint that, that God is not going to just leave hum, humanity to be condemned and to, to be in judgment. But in Genesis 3.15, we have what sometimes biblical scholars call the, the, the proto-evangelium proto or the first gospel. It's in Genesis 3.15, and this is what it says. I will put enmity, God here is talking to Satan now and cursing Satan because of what he has done and, and tempting Adam and Eve. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This bruise to the head, this idea is really of crushing his head. This is a, this is a mortal wound. In other words, there's going to be a child born of the woman, born of Eve, uh, who is going to come and redeem God's people and destroy Satan. That was sort of the first shadow, the first hint of the gospel. 
this expectation is, is set forth right at the beginning of, of the Bible. And in Genesis, when you're reading, there's this anticipation as those who know God, who are God's people, are awaiting a child to be born of the seed of woman. Well, God begins really to enact this promise with Abraham and Sarah. And we talked about that again. He appeared to them, Abraham and Sarah, and He made a covenant with them. He promised to make them a great nation. And this promise included a couple things. It, it included, first of all, an offspring or a seed, a child, and then descendants from that child. And it, number two, it included the idea of a land. So in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, this is the first appearance of God to Abraham. And it says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Abraham, leave your father, leave your family behind, leave your home behind, and go. I'm going to tell you where to go, and I'll show you a land, and that's the land I'm going to give to you so that you and your descendants can become this great nation. So that's the land. The second part of that promise is the offspring. And there's several passages where God promises it, but one of the best, or one of my favorite at least, is Genesis 15. And he brought him outside. The Lord brought Abraham outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness God said to Abraham he took him out on a night when all the stars out there he said look up to the the stars of the heaven so shall your offspring be in other words I'm going to give you not only one child they didn't have any children I'm going to give you one child but but from that child a great nation is going to be born and, and there are going to be many descendants who will come from this child but this promise wasn't just individualized to Abraham and Sarah God was beginning to work out that plan of redemption that He mentioned in Genesis 3.15 when He said that He was going to bring the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. That promise is what is being enacted in Abraham. So yes, it's a promise for Abraham, for him to enjoy, but it's bigger than even Abraham. It's bigger than Isaac. It's bigger than even the nation of Israel. It's actually a promise for all the nations of the earth. So in Genesis 12, once more, it says this, and I will make a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Abraham, you're not just going to be blessed. You're going to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and who, him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, through this promised seed that's going to come, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham, it isn't just for you. It isn't just for Isaac. It isn't just for uh, the nation of Israel who's coming after you through your lineage. This is going to be a, a promise to bless all the nations of the earth. So, this plan required faith on Abraham's part, right? We already see that he had to leave his homeland. And he didn't even know where he was going for sure. God just said, go out and I'll show you. And chapter 11, verse 8 in Hebrew says, he went out not knowing where he was going. Second, he and Sarah, it required faith because he and Sarah were infertile. They, they were not able to have children. And God said, I'm going to give you a child. And they had never been able to have a child. So it required faith. But third... 
The third reason it required faith is that he was 75. (laughs) He was 75 years old. The first time that God appeared to him and made this promise. And God didn't ultimately give him Isaac until he was 100 years old. So you imagine God shows up and he says, you're going to have a child. Okay, well, it's a little bit late, but we better get cracking, right? We, we better get started because we're running out of time. I'm already 75 years old. But, but God says, okay, let me wait 25 years and then I'm going to fulfill this promise. Isaac's going to be born when you're 100 years old. And of course, God didn't even tell him when it was going to happen. He said, it's going to happen. Wait for me and, and I'll do it. During this time, as any of us would, right? Abraham perhaps was confused about why is this taking so long? So several different times, right? Abraham kind of offers, maybe this is what God wants to do. So one time he mentions that he has a servant, Eleazar, who, who is his uh, heir. Maybe that's, that's who it is. But God says, no, that's, that's not it. Then after 10 years, after 10 years, God appeared at age 75. 10 years later, Abraham's thinking, did, did, was I crazy? Did, did God appear to me? Was that all not true? Was this something, I, a figment of my imagination? So he and Sarah come up with an idea 10 years after God has still not fulfilled this promise. Well, well, maybe what I need to do, Sarah, since you're infertile, uh, and really this was Sarah's idea, Abraham, what you need to do is actually just take another wife. And there's this servant, why don't you just take Hagar and you can take her to be your wife and, and, and have more than one wife and then she can bear a son and that will be the child that God uses to fulfill this promise. So that's what they do. But after Ishmael is born, who's the son from Hagar, God appeared to Abraham again and reaffirmed the promise that it was going to come to Abraham and to Sarah, that they would have a son. And in Genesis 17, this is what, this is what occurs after, after uh, Ishmael is born. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. Moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become and she shall become nations, kings and people shall come from her, not from Hagar. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. This is the conversation that's referred to in verse 18 of our text this morning in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 18. uh, He offered up Isaac of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Not, Not through Ishmael, not through this you trying to, contrive your own plan to make God's promises come true, Abraham. No, I'm going to do this miraculously and it will be through Isaac. So finally, after a quarter of a century, God fulfilled his promise and gave Abraham and Sarah a son. So you can imagine the joy that they had. They've been waiting 25 years, 
hundred years old Abraham is, and they have a child. Clearly, it's all the way around. It's a miracle. Number one, Sarah was infertile, and now Sarah and Abraham are both geriatric. So, so you have this infertile geriatric couple who's having a, a child, right? Uh, and and it's a miracle all all the way around. But fast forward at least several years, and something is really shockingly anticlimactic, right? You think this is the end of the story. God gave them the child. God's fulfilling his promises. Everything's going good now. This is the end of the story, right? No, that's not the end of the story. In this anticlimactic event, God told Abraham to take this son that he had been waiting for for 25 years that God had given to him, that God insisted this would be the son through whom the promise of redemption would come. Take that son and offer him as a sacrifice. Now you got to be thinking if you're, you're Abraham, what? is going on here God commanded something that at least momentarily appeared to call his goodness and his faithfulness into question it seemingly appeared in this little moment of time that God's promises were coming untrue God said I'm going to fulfill this Abraham had waited he believed he trusted God and God finally fulfilled it and now it seems as if right if you're Abraham doesn't it appear God's taking his promise away God's undoing His promise. When Isaac dies, the promise dies because God said it was through Isaac. So so what's going on here? God had definitively stated that all the promises to Abraham, everything was tied to Isaac. So without faith, God's command would have appeared to be the undoing of the promise. Looking at it from a purely human standpoint, It appeared that God was taking decisive action to strip away his promises. This was a test of Abraham's faith. And this was really the greatest test of his faith. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, in the account that tells the story of Abraham offering Isaac up, at the beginning of it in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, it says, after these things, God tested Abraham. That's how the story is introduced. God was testing Abraham. This test was meant to prove the genuineness of uh, of Abraham's faith, and, and it was meant to strengthen Abraham's faith. That's what that's what trials do. That's what testings do. That's what God is doing. When, whenever there's a trial in your life, that's what God is doing. He, he's proving your faith. He's proving it to be true. He, he's testing in it that way, and, and he's also strengthening it. You know, this required for Abraham a different kind of faith, or we might say another level of faith, a stronger faith than he had ever exhibited before. Before, Abraham had to trust that God could do the impossible, that he could give an infertile geriatric couple a child. And he believed God. He trusted God, that God could do the impossible. And then the next test, what was that Abraham had to trust God to do the impossible despite the long period of waiting, right? God said he's going to do it, but he just keeps prolonging this. Year after year is passing and he's still not fulfilling his promise. And so he wavered at points, but but ultimately the Bible teaches that Abraham had faith and trusted God. He had a patient faith. But now this this is a whole different kind of test of his faith. Now God is calling Abraham to trust him in the darkness 
when it appeared to human reason that God was working in the exact opposite direction of His promise. Before, you're just waiting. You're thinking God has said He can do the impossible and now He's calling on you to wait long, long, long periods of time before He does it. But now, God is acting in a way that it's more difficult because God is acting in a way that seems to be directly opposed to what He said, right? This, this is what's, what's going on here. The, the past test, in the past test, Abraham had to trust God even when, or in this test rather, Abraham had to trust God even when, dare we say it, God doesn't appear to be acting like God to, to him in, in that moment. E- even today, as we read this text, probably you're thinking, why did God tell him not? I mean, you're, you're probably thinking that right now. This is weird that God would ask him to sacrifice Isaac. And scholars and, and Christian apologists have, have wrestled with why would God even have him do something that on the face of it seems like an immoral act. And, and we're going to deal with that in just a second. But, but if just realize, if we're struggling with that, even knowing the rest of the story, even knowing how Scripture unfolds, just imagine Abraham in that moment. Why is God requesting this of him? It's one thing to patiently wait for a promise that seems impossible. It's another thing to trust God when God's promises are coming untrue. So the big question for Abraham is how could he respond? How is it that he could respond with faith-filled obedience when it appeared to human reason that God was doing the exact opposite of what he had promised? Now, why, why does the writer of Hebrews include this story here? Because that's the same thing the people in the original audience were dealing with. You remember, they, they had trusted Christ. They had left their life of Judaism. They had believed that Jesus was the Messiah, which meant in many respects, some of them would be cut off from their family. Some of them had been imprisoned. Some of them were just spoken evilly about. They were enduring persecution and trial. And so they, in some respects, were like Abraham, who's like, I'm trusting God, I'm believing God, but it appears that God is working in my life in such a way that He's kind of working against me. He's he's working against the promises that He has given me. So the writer of Hebrews, I think, includes this illustration. But it wasn't just for Abraham, it isn't just for the original audience, but it's for us as well. In our lives, we may go through, and and I would say we probably will go through periods of time when it isn't just that we have to wait for God's promises, looking to the future, but when we have to continue trusting the Lord, even though it may seem to us that God is working in the opposite direction of His promises. I'm trusting God, I'm believing God, but but it seems like really, in, in many ways, my life is getting worse having trusted Him. How do we go on trusting and obeying God in the dark times when when God's providence works in such a way that it may appear to call into question His promises and His goodness? How how do you do that, believer? What what is it that allows you to continue to trust God even though everything seems to be going in the wrong direction? Well, let me give you the short answer and then... We'll highlight a few things here from from the text. The short answer is this. You've got to look outside 
or beyond your temporary circumstances to the Lord in those moments who can define and give clarity to us. Here's an important truth. Don't define God based on your present circumstances. Instead, define your present circumstances by what God has revealed about Himself in His Word. See, this is what we as Christians are tempted to do. We're tempted to look at our circumstances and say, God must not be good. God must not, maybe he isn't going to fulfill his promises. Maybe his promises aren't true. Maybe the Bible isn't true. Maybe there isn't even a God, right? Because we're going through these trials, right? In fact, one of the things that you see with people often who walk away from the church and walk away from the Lord uh, and, and sometimes who even become atheists is, is that there's been some great trial in their life and they just can't put it all together. How could I be following Christ? How could I be a Christian and yet God let this happen? How could God let my child die with cancer? How could God let us go through this tragedy? How could God do this? It seems like in that dark time, God's promises were not true. And so I'm just walking away from all of it. But you see what you're doing there in that moment is that you're defining God and His promises based on your present circumstances instead of defining your present circumstances based on what God has revealed about Himself. I had this quote from Spurgeon and then uh, I was in a conversation with, with Jared and this morning and and he sent this quote out as well, and I think it was just an affirmation. Uh, but but uh, Charles Spurgeon once said, when you can't trace God's hand, trust His heart. When you can't trace His hands. In other words, I don't understand this. I, I, this. I can't make sense. Like Abraham, I just can't make sense of why God would call me to do this now. That doesn't even seem... It's just so... Crazy that this would happen, right? And there's times in your life where, where you can't trace your hand. I don't know what God is up to. I don't know what God is doing or why He's allowed this. But, but what Spurgeon is saying there, when you can't trace His hand, in other words, I don't know what He's doing, trust His heart. Trust His heart. Believe what God has said about Himself despite what you might be led or prone to believe by your present circumstances. There are three things that Abraham knew about God and these truths about God enabled him to respond in a faith-filled obedience to this strangest of all command. Abraham looked outside of his present circumstances and he looked to God. And in particular, he looked to three things that I want us to consider this morning. The, the first is this, faith trust God's person. Faith trust God's person. God is good and faithful and we cannot allow brief moments of uncertainty in our limited changing experience to overshadow our view of the eternal god god is faithful and he is good and and even if i'm going through a moment in time where it's hard for me to understand how a good and faithful god could allow me to go through this I'm going to trust what God has said about Himself, about His eternal, unchanging character. I'm going to trust what God has revealed about His person, about His nature, over what I'm understanding in my limited, changing experience. You see, that's the problem with defining God based on your experience. It changes. 
So, so if your view of God changes, uh, if your view of God is, is attached to your per, per, present experience, it's going to change, right? From day to day, we change. We go through different things. We go through dark moments. We go through valleys. We go through on, on mountains, right? We go through those things. We can't tie our view of God to that because it's going to change all the time. God is eternal and He's unchanging. He, he changes not. And so we need to trust what God says about Himself despite our present circumstance. One of the amazing things here about Abraham is that there appears that there's no sign of wavering. There's no sign of wavering with him when it comes to this. In Genesis 22, we won't, we won't read that, but go back and read uh, the text of what, what happens. God appears to him and says, God, Abraham, go do this. And in the past, what did Abraham do? Well, you know, I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe I should go into Hagar and maybe I'll fulfill God's promise that way. Or maybe it's this way. He, he connives. He, he plots. He plans at different times. But, but, but in this time when God appears to him and, and says this to Abraham, it, the, the text just tells us he just immediately goes and obeys. It, it just says, so he went and he took Isaac and he loaded the donkey and they went to the mountain where God had said there, there was no uh, argument. He doesn't come up with some scheme or an alternative. Without a word of protest, he goes and attempts to do what God has commanded him to do. What can account for Abraham's response? Well, I think Abraham's faith had matured. And it is strengthened from those past experiences. That's what testing does, right? It strengthens our faith. And Abraham had been through multiple tests, and I think God had strengthened his faith. In particular, I think Abraham's faith had come to know God personally in a better and a deeper way. Those events were lesser trials that prepared him for this greatest of all testings. Through, through everything, he had learned experientially something of the character of the Lord who had revealed himself. He had come to see and to know in an experiential way that the Lord is good. God is faithful. I waited 25 years and God did this. God gave us miraculously a child. And I think when that happened, Abraham's doubts and Abraham's waverings were, were eliminated. I think he came to the point where he understood, wow, God really is faithful. God really is true. He really is good. And he knew this not simply as a matter of a theological truth, right? Some of us could pass a theology test on the, on the attributes of God. Yes, God is good. And this verse says God is good. And that verse says God is good. And God is faithful. Here's this verse and that verse. And this is what it means that God is faithful. But, but listen, what Abraham knew was he, he had that experiential knowledge, but he also, or he had that, that theological knowledge, but he also had an experiential knowledge. He had walked with the Lord and he had come to the place where he understood God is good and he's good to me and he's revealed that to me and he's shown it again and again. There, there are two statements in the account that clue us in that, that Abraham had confidence in God. The first is in Genesis 22 uh, verses 4 through 5. It says this, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. We're going to go over there, Isaac and I, and we're going to go worship 
and we will come back to you. I'm coming back and Isaac is coming back with me as well. That clues us in that he understood that God was in some faithful way, maybe a miraculous way, that God was going to uh, allow Isaac to live. And then in chapter 22, verse 7, just a, a few verses down, and Isaac said to his father, my father, he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went. So they went, both of them, together. Again, that's a statement of faith. God's, Isaac, I don't know. I'm going, he didn't tell him, right? You are the lamb, right? You're the sacrifice, right? He doesn't say that because he understood God's going to do something. Isaac, I don't know. But God is good. And God is faithful. And, and he's going to provide a lamb. God, Abraham knew that whatever happened in this moment, God was not finally going to take Isaac away or undo his promise. He knew that. He knew beyond a doubt that God is good. He knew that. Abraham knew and trusted in the goodness of God. The question I think for us is do you know him personally in that way? Have you come to walk with the Lord in such a way that yes, you read it in the Bible and that's how we know who God is. We, we receive it through his divine revelation of himself. But have you walked with the Lord in such a way that experientially you can know God is good, that he's been with you, that, that he's brought you through trials in the past, uh, that, that, that he has fulfilled his promises in the past in such a way that when those dark moments come, you can say, I, know, I don't know what, I don't, I don't understand why, I, I can't make sense of it, but I know God's good, and I know God's going to bring me through this. That's the kind of faith that Abraham had, and that's the kind of faith that we must have if we're going to persevere in the faith. When you go through the darkest seasons of your life, it may appear to you that God is working in a way that is inconsistent with his character and that is out of step with his plan. And the only way you will remain faithful and obedient is if you live by faith, trusting that God is indeed who he has revealed himself to be in his word and, ha and has confirmed in your experience. W one of the Psalms says to taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste. That means experience, right? Taste and see that the Lord is good. The, the only way that you will get through those dark moments when, when you can't make sense of everything is if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Because you're going to have to trust that. You're going to have to believe that. Because in that moment, everything about your circumstances is going to be say, God's promises aren't true. He, he isn't good. He, he's left me alone. But you must trust that you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Abraham and we must have faith that trusts God's person, but he had also faith that trusts God's power. Faith believes so thoroughly in God's faithfulness that it knows that God can and will even do the miraculous to bring, to bring them about. God can and will 
even do the miraculous to bring about His promises if, if necessary. I think what we have here in, uh, in the book of Hebrews in, in this account is a bit of divinely inspired deduction from the Genesis account because you look at, at verse number eight, uh, 17 and 18. It says, By faith Abraham, when he attested it, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And then verse 19 is really where I wanted to be. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. And so how, how does the author of Hebrews know that, that Abraham thought that God could raise him from the dead? Well, I think he's basing that off of that statement that Abraham made, which said, we're going to go worship and we will come back to you. We're, we're going to return so I think what's going on here in Abraham's mind is a, beta, a, a bit of faith-filled reasoning. Verse number 19 says, he considered, he considered, he calculated, that word means, he calculated, he thought through this. In other words, God, God told him to do this, and he did some reasoning in, in his head. Here was Abraham's calculation. Well, I know that God is good, and I know that God is faithful. God has given this son as a fulfillment of his promise. God promised to make a nation from this son, from, from Isaac, and not another son, but this particular son. Now, God has commanded me to offer him as a sacrifice. That doesn't seem like that all fits together. So Abraham concluded then that God is able to do something miraculous, if necessary, even perform a resurrection in order to fulfill his promise. You see... Abraham, did, in his calculation, he took into the fact that God is powerful, that He is almighty, that He's able to do anything. Abraham had already seen that, right? He had already come to experience not only God's goodness, but the fact that God can do anything. He can do the miraculous. And so Abraham trusted God. He, he took the miraculous into his calculation. That's oftentimes what we do. What, what we fail to do, rather. We look at the situation and we say this is a hopeless situation. This is a dead situation. God doesn't seem like He's going to fulfill His promises because this and this and this has happened and there's no way then, right? We, we say there's no way that anything else can happen here because humanly speaking, it's impossible. But, but when you have faith, you trust in God's power. You say, it looks like God's promise is dead. It, it looks as if everything's fallen to the ground. It looks as if God has forgotten me and there is no hope. But, but when you do a calculation based on faith, you trust God is powerful. He can, he can resurrect this situation. He, he can bring a change here. He can do some miraculous thing. We have already seen that Abraham had no doubt about God's goodness and faithfulness. But now we see that he understands as well the power of God. God is not limited as human beings are limited. He's able to do whatever is necessary to accomplish his purpose. And Abraham believed that. The question is, do you believe that this morning? I'm reminded of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask and think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever. And amen. He's able to do not just a little bit more than we ask or think. He's able to do 
abundantly more than anything that you could ask or even think. Right? So, so when we look at our situation, we think, God's left me. This, this is dead. What's, what's going on here? You, you need to understand, God is able to do the miraculous. He's almighty. He's powerful. He's able to do far more abundantly than anything you could ask or even think of. And we need to have that as part of our faith. Faith, trust, and the power of God. Thirdly, and finally, we'll conclude with this. I know I'm going a little bit long this morning, but faith, trust, God's plan. The plan of God. God's plan is bigger than this single event or this present moment. And He's doing something great through this dark season. You see, God's promises to us are tied to a bigger storyline. So even though my present circumstance, right here in this, this little slice of time, even though it may seem dark and hopeless, even though it may appear God is not being faithful, yet I know He's working everything out for His glory and for my good because this plan of God doesn't end on today. This plan of God isn't dependent on this this little tiny moment, this little tiny sliver of time in my life, this plan of God to redeem and to bless His people is, is a story that has been since the beginning of time and that is going to stretch out into all eternity. And, and I just need to locate that this is just a little point of time in that moment and I need to look at the bigger plan of God. I think Abraham was able to do this. He understood that this was more than a promise to simply bless him as an individual. He understood that this was an even bigger, uh, that this was even bigger than God's intention to build a nation out of his descendants. He understood that this was a promise for God to redeem the world through his offspring. He, he had that big picture in mind. And one of the things that the New Testament writers consistently bring out about Abraham is, is that he understood that. He, he had that bigger picture in mind. In fact, Jesus says in John 8, 58, he says that Abraham desired to see my day. Jesus talking about Abraham. So we're talking about hundreds, thousands of years before, before Jesus. Abraham desired to see my day. He saw it and rejoiced. How did he see it? How did he see the days of Jesus? In fact, that's what everybody questions Jesus. How did, how did, how did that happen? Well, well, Abraham had faith. He had eyes of faith. In fact, chapter 11, verse 13 of Hebrews says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. In other words, they had eyes of faith that looked into the future that saw God's fulfillment of them. You could look at Galatians 3 uh, as well to see how Paul illustrates the fact that Abraham understood and looked forward to the days of Christ. This led him to a confidence that God was not going to bring this to an untimely end. He just knew it. God's got this plan and, and he's revealed it to me and he said that there's this plan to bless all the nations through Isaac and so I don't understand what's going on in this moment of time, but I believe that this plan of God is going to be unfolded. I believe that God is going to be faithful to do what he has said to bless all the nations of the earth through this descendant, through Isaac and through his children. And so because of that, I'm going to look to the big plan of God and I'm going to interpret this tiny event 
in light of that. And so I don't know how everything's going to get worked out, but I know that ultimately God will bless His people. He interpreted this moment in light of a longer story that He knew God was telling. And this story included God's final blessing on Him and the world. So He knew it wasn't ending in this moment. So as we come to a close this morning, if you are to remain faithful to God's final blessing, uh, if you are to remain faithful, sorry, in the dark hours of your life, you must read those moments in light of the fuller story that God is telling. One of the amazing things about this story with Isaac is that now that we are further along in that plan, now that we have more details, we see how gloriously that incident with Isaac pictures the gospel. It's one of the clearest pictures or shadows of the gospel. In that moment, God was revealing to Abraham there's going to come a sacrifice. And it isn't going to be your only begotten son. It's going to be my only begotten son. And I'm going to give my only begotten son for you and for your people and for all the nations of the earth. And it's through this only begotten son who will will die as a sacrifice that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And it's because of Christ, this descendant of Abraham, that we can have the promise of Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. In other words, we know there's, if you're in a dark moment right now, you can know God's got a fuller plan in which He takes all of this mess and He ties it up and He cleans it up and He works it all out for your ultimate good. And one of the ways that you can be very confident and and know that to be the case is that God gave His Son to redeem you, His only begotten Son. In fact, Romans 8.31, that same passage but a little further, says this, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Listen, God, as part of His plan, has given His Son to redeem you. And based on that, you can be certain that He's not going to leave you now. You think you're in a dark moment and, oh, God's forgotten. No, He gave His Son, His only begotten Son, to redeem you. Do you think now... After doing the greatest thing that he could have done, do you think now he's going to leave you? Now that he's not going to uh, fulfill his promises? No. When we look to Christ and we look to Isaac who pictured this sacrifice of Christ, we can see and we can know for sure that God has a greater plan and we need to trust that. In the dark moments, you can trust the plan of God to work all things out for your good because he has already done the most miraculous thing that could have been done He gave His only begotten Son for you so that whoever believes in Him will not perish. Whatever you're in, you're not ultimately going to perish, but you will have everlasting life. Let's pray. Lord, we come to You this morning and we are grateful for Your Son. God, we think of the story of Isaac and and Abraham and we think, how how could Abraham even have done that? And, And yet we know, Lord, You didn't ultimately require him to sacrifice Isaac. Um... This was a testing uh, that you put into his life to prove his faith. Uh, But we know that you really did give your only begotten son. And you did that 
Lord, for your glory, but you did that for us as well so that you could redeem your people. God, I pray that this morning each one of us would look by faith to Jesus Christ, that we would trust in him and that that trusting in him and, and looking to him uh, in, in that sacrifice and, and in his resurrection, Lord, we would be confident uh, that there's no way you're going to leave us in our suffering right now that you really do have a plan to redeem us and to bring us out of all of our trials and out of all of our troubles. And I pray that you would give us the kind of faith that trusts you even in the darkest times. God, would you work that in our hearts? And we pray it in Christ's name.